0: This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC, points through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. Common knee complaints. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute. And now our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao.
1: Caitlin Jenner has been in the media a lot, but we sometimes forget that she was the 1976 Olympic decathlon champion That's no small feat. And the wear and tear of sports on her body was considerable. By age 50, Jenner had already been diagnosed with osteoarthritis of the knee and has been vocal in sharing her experience and how the condition has affected her. She had to stop playing basketball, then tennis, and then running due to knee pain. In the early 2000s, she went on a national campaign alongside another Olympic gold medalist, skater Dorothy Hamill, to spread awareness about osteoarthritis. Dorothy was already dealing with unusual joint pain in her early 40s, resulting from osteoarthritis. Her trick for staying on top of the condition is to stay active. These celebrity athletes aren't alone, though. Osteoarthritis is an extremely common condition, with over 32 million adults suffering from the condition. The knee is one of the most affected joints for OA, and knee pain is a very frequent complaint in primary care. So today on MedNet, we'll be discussing two common knee complaints, osteoarthritis and meniscal root tears. My first guest is Dr. Michael Barria, who is a sports medicine expert at Ohio State University. He is the director of sports orthobiologics and serves as the team physician for Ohio State Wrestling. He'll be taking us through the use of a newer knee OA treatment, platelet-rich plasma, and conservative versus surgical approaches for meniscal root tears he will be sharing his talk by pre-recorded video today and in the studio with me i have dr john dewitt john is a doctor of physical therapy at ohio state university wexner medical center specializing in sports and orthopedic physical therapy john welcome to MedNet. thank you very much all right john now how effective is physical therapy at addressing NEOA?
2: Uh, Physical therapy is very effective. Uh, In fact, uh, some of the uh, greatest evidence uh, supports the active intervention of physical therapy to improving strength, stability, to improve joint mechanics in the knee, and improving quality of life.
1: Okay, great. Can't wait to hear more about it. Thanks, John. For our audience, please feel free to send us any questions you have using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast player. You can find all 120 of our current webcasts on our website, CCME.OSU.EDU, including programs like HIP Problems or Guidelines for the Sidelines. Our programs are also available by podcast. Search for MED921 CME on your preferred platform. Now let's get started with Michael's presentation. Uh, Good
3: afternoon, everyone. My name is Mike Beria. I'm the director of orthobiologics at the Ohio State University uh, Wexner Medical Center and the Center for Sports Medicine. Um, So today we're going to have two presenters. Uh, My talk will be two parts. Uh, The first portion is going to be covering uh, platelet-rich plasma, the common questions you and your patients might be asking. And the second part is going to be on meniscus root tears, a really important, relatively newer musculoskeletal diagnosis that we think is really important um, to recognize so for the first portion of our talk we want to discuss PRP and musculoskeletal medicine and we want to cover 10 years of research and 10 minutes so save everybody a decade of journal clubs and research and really what we've learned and what we've progressed through in the last decade. Um, Our disclosures include that I'm a consultant for both Arthrex and Reon. These are companies that operate in the biologic space and are manufacturers of PRP devices and products. Um, Also, when we talk about PRP uh, for the use of knee osteoarthritis or tendinitis, this is all off-label, and so there is no FDA indication for this currently. Our objectives today, we want to discuss the definition and preparation methods for platelet-rich plasma. We want to discuss the data supporting PRP for musculoskeletal indications, and we want to define currently used, quote-unquote, stem cell procedures and define those and compare those outcomes to PRP. So what is platelet-rich plasma? Uh, Your patients might be asking you about this in clinic. Maybe you utilize it. Maybe you're skeptical. So PRP is defined as a solution of platelets that's elevated at least two times over baseline compared to the patient's peripheral blood. It's derived from the peripheral blood. Uh, It's done at the point of care. So any elevation of platelets two-fold over baseline. There's a variety of preparation methods available. And the devil's really in the details here. The the various um, preparation methods are going to change the precise cellular and protein content. So you're going to get different dosing based on the different preparation methods. So here's just a few examples of these preparation methods. First is a plasma-based method. So um, over on the right uh, of the screen, you can see a sequence of of that preparation. So we take a small volume of peripheral blood, just about 15 mLs, that spun in a centrifuge for five minutes in that second quadrant. You can see that separation of PRP from the red blood cells and white blood cells at the bottom of the syringe. Then that inner syringe is used to just draw up the PRP manually. And then the final quadrant shows you that final product. So this plasma-based method It only gives you uh, platelet elevation about two to three times over baseline, but this is the method that has the most robust data supporting its use. Other methods are going to include a Buffy Coat method, so that same blood is just spun at a much higher concentration or a much higher speed for a longer period of time, and you can see in... um, uh, block B there, uh, that little diagonal portion, that's actually the Buffy coat uh, where the um, uh, the plate that's going to be more densely concentrated. So now we're talking about five to seven times baseline. Um, and then that can be extracted uh, for the same use. Um, the final one that we'll discuss is a gel-based system. These are really popular because they're highly convenient. There's, um, this is the same type of tube that will be used in the lab uh, to process standard um, uh, lab values. There's a thixotropic gel layer that provides the separation between the PRP and the red blood cells. So it's very convenient because it um, does a nice job isolating and preventing contamination. The only problem with these is that platelets get trapped in the gel. So there's a concern that the PRP coming out of these devices results in a subtherapeutic dose. Um, And some of the studies that have used these gel systems have had uh, less than optimal outcomes. What's the foundational mechanism behind PRP? How does this work? So when platelets degranulate, and in our practice uh, or in our application, they're going to degranulate as soon as they hit articular cartilage um, or tendon. That collagen exposure is what stimulates degranulation. They will then release their alpha granules, and then there's hundreds of proteins that are going to get deployed. But we think about anabolic proteins getting released like transforming growth factor beta, insulin-like growth factor, um, and fibroblast growth factor. These are just a few, but these are the anabolic proteins that seem to be really important in cartilage and tendon health. In vitro studies have shown that exposure to PRP results in a dose-dependent reduction in apoptosis of of arthritic cartilage and induction of tendon stem cell differentiation. So we see uh, an anabolic and an anti-catabolic effect of PRP in the lab. And the question is, does that, what we see in the lab, does it translate into clinical medicine? The earliest reports of using PRP for knee arthritis were published in 2010. This was one of the journals that we read in Journal Club when I was in uh, residency and fellowship. Um, and an uh, Italian clinic had followed 100 patients treated with a series of 3-PRP and found really good improvements in their IKDC scores, just in the outcome score, that were durable for a year. So this drew a lot of attention to it, but obviously a lot of skepticism. With this kind of data, we have no control. We, have, uh, we don't know if there's a, a large placebo effect, um, and so so better evidence was definitely needed then. Um, over time, this data got significantly better. Pat Smith out of the University of Missouri performed the first FDA sanction, double-blind RCT uh, of PRP for knee arthritis. It's a small sample size. So if you look at, we've got the references here, uh, but um, small sample size, this was a phase 1-2 study uh, with the FDA. So primary endpoint is safety. That's why we have the limited sample size. 15 uh, patients were allotted to each group, PRP, and plus placebo. And what they found was not only was it safe at one year, but there was a significant difference between the PRP group um, and the uh, the placebo group. Uh, This was using the plasma-based method that we discussed first, and we see that separation between, like a clinical difference between groups at two weeks, and that effect is, is profound and durable for a full year. So this was the first study that really drew people's attention to saying that this is more than just a placebo Effect. Um, Patel repeated these findings uh, with a lab based preparation of PRP when they performed a three armed double blind RCT and they compared a single dose of PRP versus a series of two versus placebo. In this, they saw clinical improvement in the PRP group only as early as six weeks. That was durable for six months. Um, So significant improvement in the platelet-rich plasma group, no change in the placebo arm. Uh, And then importantly, there was no difference between the two PRP protocols, which suggests that once we elicit uh, a therapeutic response, there could be a ceiling effect that more PRP is not better, and we sort of maxed out our benefit uh, with a single dose. So after PRP demonstrated that it was superior to placebo, the next obvious comparison is, is it better than standard of care for knee arthritis? Um, In our minds, that's visco supplement. We don't have any of the concerns about repeat use of corticosteroid, Um, so we focus on visco supplement um, or the, the hyaluronic acid injections that a lot of patients get. Brian Cole out of Rush performed um, a really high-quality double-blind RCT comparing PRP, the same formulation that was used by Smith. Um, So now we have um, uh, comparable uh, uh, translational data here um, and compared that series of three PRP versus SynVisc, which was the original uh, HA-Visco supplementation formula on the market. Uh, PRP, there were 49 patients, and then SynVisc had 50 patients allotted to it. Three outcome measures were collected over the course of a year. Um, WOMAC, the IKDC, and VAS pain. There was no difference in the WOMAC score, but on both the IKDC and VAS pain scores, PRP was superior, again, starting at about two weeks, uh, durable through the one year. So depending on which outcome measure we look at, we can say that PRP is at least as good as visco supplement, and in some respects superior to it if we're counting uh, just a number of um, outcome measures uh, that it outperformed the control arm on. So, these are just a, a sampling of the studies. There's been study after study demonstrating superiority over placebo, uh, over steroid, uh, and over visco supplement. When we compile all this data, when we look at our meta-analyses, and again, this is just one uh, done by Belk, the, uh, these meta-analyses of level one studies um, pretty consistently find that PRP is superior to visco supplement, both in terms of the degree of pain relief and the duration of pain relief. So in our practice, we find uh, that the typical patient gets uh, somewhere between 9 and 12 months of, uh, of relief from their NEOA before they need a repeat procedure, um, sometimes compared to the every six-month um, injection regimen that visco supplement uh, is, used, uh, is used with. The evidence has grown so significantly over the past decade that most recently a review by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery supports the use of PRP for knee OA. I bring this up because the AAOS has a really high bar uh, for what they'll recommend. Um, they're, they're very tight on their recommendations. And so the number of studies that have come through supporting it um, uh, are, are really compelling and have convinced even um, a group like this that has probably the highest standard in orthopedic medicine um, that PRP is an acceptable treatment. So if PRP works and it works so well, what about stem cells? That sounds better. Uh, Patients actually might inherently understand stem cells a little bit better. Um, And so so patients often ask about this. What about stem cells? Can't you regrow my cartilage? Can't you restore uh, the native anatomy of my knee? Um, And so while there's robust data supporting the use of PRP and we're very confident in it, that data does not exist for so-called stem cell therapy in the United States. Um, and we'll clarify this because in in the world of uh, quote unquote stem cell therapy, um, there's a lot there's a lot of misunderstanding. So there's three sources that people were trying to get stem cells from, uh, as this is practiced in the United States because in the United States there is no culture expanded stem cell therapy uh, permitted for any orthopedic condition. So what is being called stem cell therapy um, are either uh, injections of bone marrow concentrate, adipose, or some kind of gestational uh, birth tissue-related product, uh, product, amniotic fluid, placental tissue, or umbilical cord. Um, The problem with these, uh, number one, is these aren't meaningful sources of stem cells. When we look at bone marrow concentrate, uh, less than 0.01% of the cells uh, in bone marrow concentrate are actually stem cells. Um, The rest of it pretty much looks like highly concentrated PRP, but there's not mesenchymal stem cells in there to any meaningful extent. Adipose has more mesenchymal stem cells in it than bone marrow, but as the patient has excess adiposity, the quality of that stem cell is impaired. And so they experience more cellular senescence, there's more pro-inflammation, and so they're not really primed for orthopedic use. Um, and then finally, um, several studies have proven that these off the shelf amniotic products um, that are often used in um, these strip mall type clinics, um, there are absolutely no living mesenchymal stem cells in these products. Um, and so none of these should be termed stem cell therapy. So that's point number one is that there really is no such thing as stem cell therapy in the United States for orthopedic conditions. Anybody advertising that or using that, um, uh, isn't uh, really up to speed on what the data is saying. Um, so beyond just the definitions, unlike PRP, these products have very limited data and have never outperformed our standard of care options. So if we consider PRP now our gold standard um, and use that as the control arm, Adam Ans out of the Andrews Institute um, demonstrated that compared to to PRP, bone marrow concentrate was not superior at two years. So a single PRP injection, very simple, not all that expensive, was just as good as a uh, more invasive, uh, more expensive bone marrow concentrate procedure. And then our group at Ohio State performed a uh, randomized trial comparing PRP to adipose derived cells. Um, And PRP is just as good as, uh, again, a more invasive procedure at both six months and a year. Uh, The third caution is that significant harm has resulted uh, from the use of these amniotic off-the-shelf products. Um, These are considered illegal to market for osteoarthritis. Uh, The regulatory environment is very murky, uh, can be very complicated to understand. Uh, But in short, because of poor quality control measures, these vials of amniotic fluid were tainted with uh, E. coli, and so that was injected into patients resulting in septic arthritis, epidural abscesses. Uh, This is just one article out of the New York Times. Much more harm has occurred than just this, but this is just one example of the public recognition of this harm. This is a report. Um, From the FDA, an investigation of one of these labs, not only did the FDA find bacterial contamination, but also the donors who donated the tissue for these off-the-shelf injections um, were not screened uh, properly um, and were positive for hepatitis and Chagas disease. So very concerning uh, that these are are still being used uh, in some of these clinics that we mentioned. Uh, So our recommendations regarding PRP and biologics is that PRP has robust evidence demonstrating safety, top-tier efficacy for knee osteoarthritis. We're very confident um, in its use and its performance. It's got level one evidence as well for other conditions that were a little bit beyond the scope of what we wanted to talk about today, uh, focusing on knee pathology. Um, Conditions like greater trochanteric pain, plantar fasciitis seem to be fairly responsive. These other products like bone marrow adipose and amnio, they're not stem cell therapy. And in our opinion, until there's better data, better safety measures, um, they should be avoided um, in lieu of uh, or or, uh, in favoring PRP. These uh, should be uh, avoided for patient safety concerns. that concludes part one of our talk. So that's um, an update on the therapeutic interventions we have for knee osteoarthritis. Um, There's another more recently recognized pathology that we think is um, a really significant, maybe the most significant, newer musculoskeletal diagnosis that we want to keep promoting awareness of because of the Uh, ability to improve a patient's quality of life, Uh, and that pathology is meniscus root tears. Um, And so um, we all all received education on meniscal pathology, like degenerative tears, bucket handle horizontal tears. But in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, meniscus root tears were recognized, and even in the orthopedic community, these were not previously understood. So many of us, especially in the primary care, non-operative sports medicine world, we just never really got this education. Um, So the meniscus root is just the anchor of the meniscus to the tibia. So we'll focus on that posterior root. So it's just that posterior anchor at the tibial eminence. This is really important because what this does is this allows the meniscus to dissipate hoop stress. As there's contact pressure compressing the joint, um, that root allows for successful um, distribution of that force. If we disrupt that root, the knee behaves as if there is no meniscus, so the patient might as well have a complete meniscectomy, Um, and so the loss of this root function can result in devastating consequences to the knee. So because of those increased contact pressures without a functional meniscus root, the joint Uh, The joint deteriorates rapidly. It can result in premature need for knee replacement. And if we're able to promptly recognize and adequately treat uh, these root tears, get them off to a surgical colleague uh, in a timely fashion, that's been proven to demonstrate the need uh, for joint replacement. Um, So the presentation of a meniscus root tear, uh, a little bit more unique than typical meniscus tears that we're used to seeing. Patient demographics, uh, the patient is is typically in their middle age. It's more common in females. Um, Obesity is a risk factor, and patients often have um, a small amount of uh, varus malalignment, uh, putting more pressure on that medial meniscus. Um, whereas sport-related meniscus tears are fairly simple to recognize. That patient has a cut pivot injury, they twist, they feel a pop, um, and then has pain. The story for meniscus root tears is, is relatively unimpressive in comparison. So maybe the patient just bent down uh, to perform a daily task like cleaning, gardening, um, something non-athletic. Uh, they might have even felt it when they were climbing up and down stairs. Uh, The common force here across that joint is that there's an axial load and knee flexion. It doesn't really have to have a rotational component to it. The patient experience is pretty classic. It's a sudden onset of severe pain. Um, It's usually in the posterior portion of the joint. Um, And so, again, this is one of the things that causes clinicians to miss it is that it's posterior knee pain. Uh, It's in the popliteal fossa, so people start thinking about things like a Baker's cyst. Um, They have significant difficulty bearing weight in the first few days. The traditional mechanical symptoms like locking and catching are not present. Again, uh, often leading clinicians away from a meniscus pathology. And then there's rapid improvement over the first week such that patients might actually be significantly improved by the time they're in our clinics. On physical exam, there's variable degrees of an antalgic gait, depending on how recently the injury happened. The patients do not usually have a knee effusion. Uh, There's posterior and joint line pain with simple hyperflexion. And then when you're you're performing that maneuver of hyperflexion, even without the rotation that that we see with McMurray's, Uh, A a pretty obvious palpable and audible clunk uh, can be felt, and then some authors describe meniscal extrusion being felt at the medial joint line. I think that's more difficult to appreciate. Uh, The plain films on these patients are very normal or just very mild osteoarthritis. Um, Again, these are all the things that lead to this diagnosis having been delayed in recognition uh, um, up until the last decade uh, because the findings are pretty unimpressive. So MRI really is definitive. Um, The pathognomonic sign on an MRI is called the ghost sign, and we see this on the sagittal view. um, And what happens if we're looking at that posterior horn all the way into the posterior root. Um, as you scroll through it, just within one slice of the MRI, the meniscus entirely disappears like a ghost. Uh, that disappearance, what we're looking at in the sagittal view is the absence of the meniscus. It's just that gap where, uh, where that meniscus is now absent and basically avulsed from its insertion. Um, so surgical referral is the key to this. It's, so it's recognizing uh, it's recognizing this pathology, recognizing the story, and then having uh, a high index of suspicion and a low threshold for MRI and surgical referral. Um, root repair uh, in a timely fashion, not not meniscal debridement, um, but a root repair has been shown to decrease the rate of arthritic development and the need for joint replacement. Um, and so we recommend, uh, and this is from the uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine, Uh, That all acute injuries are evaluated by uh, a skilled knee surgeon. Uh, A chronic injury, uh, if they have preserved joint spaces on their PA flexion view, uh, may also still benefit. Uh, But if the patient has uh, the beginnings of joint space narrowing, um, then uh, arthritic uh, development has already set in and it's probably too late. Uh, for root repair, and so those patients can be treated according uh, to our uh, uh, standard uh, osteoarthritis guidelines. Um, So the key here is just recognizing these patients have an unimpressive uh, mechanism of injury, and they're often better by the time that they get to the clinic, and their pain is usually posterior. So these are the things that caused us to fail to recognize that these were meniscus tears, Uh, but that is the story, and so Um, a quick uh, recognition of that and then uh, prompt um, ordering of an MRI and referral to a knee surgeon can really go a long way to preserve the joint health in your patient. So this is a really important and fairly simple uh, musculoskeletal diagnosis that we can really improve quality of life uh, by uh, by staying vigilant for.
1: Now, John, Michael has really stressed the early surgical referral for that acute meniscal root tear, but is there any role for pre-surgical physical therapy in these patients?
2: Uh, yes, there really is. Um, a pre-surgical physical therapy can help to improve range of motion and strength, particularly knee extension. Um, the stronger uh, a person or a patient goes into the surgery, the stronger they'll come out of that. It also allows us an opportunity to educate the patient on what to expect going into the surgery and coming out of it from a rehabilitative standpoint.
1: Perfect. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that in your talk. And so for the second half of our program, John will be discussing the role of rehab in knee osteoarthritis and meniscal root tears. John.
2: Thank you very much. Um, the, the portion of this talk is really a compliment from what Dr. Barrio was saying, and, and we're in collaboratively with our physician counterparts to ensure uh, a safe journey throughout the rehab process and return to uh, previous physical activity. We're going to discuss the focus of of the value of PT and how you can articulate the value of PT with patients that you see in your clinic suffering from from, uh, OA-related knee pain. We'll talk a little bit about the components about what we're doing in physical therapy to try to improve uh, strength and stability and joint health. Then we'll switch gears and talk a little bit more about uh, meniscal root injuries, uh, particularly about the milestones, both timeframes and criterion-based milestones to guide a patient through rehabilitation, following a surgical repair of the meniscal root, as well as functional, functional assessments that we use to ensure and the patient is able to safely return to sport or activity and reduce uh, future injury risk uh, and then finally we'll talk a little bit about some resources that are accessible to you uh, and to your patients to provide more education on the rehabilitative process. So. Th- Looking into the literature, there's a, a great amount of uh, high-level evidence that supports the importance of physical therapy in improving pain associated with knee osteoarthritis to uh, to gain not only improvements in pain, but strength, function, and quality of life. Uh, in fact, um, Research also suggests that there is a delay uh, if patients are able to uh, complete physical therapy of delaying knee uh, arthroscopic surgeries for up to one to even two years. Um, And the interventions that we incorporate in physical therapy are really focused on what we term active uh, interventions, and this is strengthening neuromuscular control, including balance, uh, low impact aerobics both within physical therapy and outside in the community after physical therapy is completed, Uh, and then a real big focus on self-efficacy and a self-management of pain uh, when it um, arises, and how a patient can independently manage that and not have to rely on the healthcare system to do that for them. And then finally, if, if obesity is present, uh, weight loss and referral to a dietitian uh, is is often very effective. Those. Active interventions have been strongly recommended by uh, a number of academies and associations, some improvement with manual therapy and wedged insoles, uh, and not a whole lot of improvement not recommended from um, various uh, organizations on using TENS, which is an electric stimulation for pain management. So the real focus and take home message for patients is active intervention, strengthening stability is really important It can improve outcomes, but how can you... uh, provide strengthening or incorporate strengthening when a patient is in pain. And we'll talk a little bit about how we do that in physical therapy. So just to, to reinforce the importance of getting patients into er, to physical therapy early, is that really thinking of it as a first-line treatment, not only can we help to improve and supervise exercise so we don't have... Uh, excessive reactivity, we really spend a lot of time with patients multiple hours a week over weeks to months to really help educate the patient and to foster trust of what's good soreness, what's bad soreness and how we can adjust to make sure that we're able to achieve strength and stability to improve physical activities and joint health. And then finally, weight loss recommendations, particularly if the BMI is over 25. That first line treatment is really important to help improve outcomes and also as a a stepping point to get into supplementary treatment and then finally further uh, referral treatment if it's needed. So what do we do in in physical therapy? Well, particularly the most important piece is education and that self-efficacy and and, and shared decision-making to foster therapeutic alliance. Patients are fearful of pushing into pain. But we know from the literature that Pain is sometimes okay. If pain is uh, at least five or less out of 10, that can still improve strength and stability. So we educate the patient, we walk alongside them to make sure that they understand what pain means, what joint pain means, what muscle soreness uh, feels like, and the importance of muscle soreness as a good milestone for understanding that we're getting stronger. From a strengthening standpoint, the huge focus is really on the quad. There is a a huge amount of inhibition that occurs in the quad when there's swelling, when there's pain, and we have to figure out ways that we can help to override that and strengthen in a safe way early on to allow us to improve loading of the the joint and of the muscle. And then hip strength, hip strength uh, and the hip rotators have a significant involvement in joint mechanics of the knee and what the knee is doing with functional activity. So hip strengthening is a a big focus for us in rehabilitation. And then finally, going into from a stability standpoint, looking at single limb positions. We advocate that uh, strongly for joint health uh, and well-being well-being to improve single limb positions, to enhance balance, to reduce fall risk, and also uh, improve joint mechanics. We also look at this in the upper extremity as well of doing single-limb stability strengthening to ensure. Uh, overhead functional stability stability is uh, improved, and then correcting gait mechanics and teaching the patients how to squat, teaching the patients how to functionally move and understand what that means for them to improve mechanics and joint health, Uh, and then what we hope to do is get them back to activity. Uh, We know that in order to improve well-being throughout your lifetime, a person needs to uh, increase the stepping per day to 8,000 to 10,000 steps a day, and that's a lot. But every step is a repetition of an exercise. So gait and stepping and walking are important exercises that we need to make sure patients have appropriate mechanics because they're doing it so many times a day. And if they're underdosing uh, their steppage, then their functional activity and their endurance and their strength will uh, be reduced, which which will impact the quality of life. But we need to match your activity with what they value. So if my patient, even though they're 80 years old, wants to go back to throwing with their grandson, we want to figure out how we can get them back to that because that matching of the activity improves value and improves adherence and compliance with physical activity, which is critical to physical, to, to physical health of the joints. So I mentioned quad strength as important. Not only is important, but it's critical, uh, and it can't just be a little. We really need to see an improvement of 30 to 40 percent of quad strength to impact pain and, and disability. So how do we do that? Well, we do it by dosing uh, appropriately our strength training. We need to uh, impart overload of the muscle in order to improve to that thirty to forty uh, percent target, um, and we do that by changing the way the way we think about. Um, optimal dosage. We typically, uh, traditionally think of dosage as a a percentage of rep uh, uh, max, uh, repetition uh, max exercise, and that's a little um, outdated. It's hard for the patient to understand what that even means, so we use auto-regulatory measures to make sure that we're dosing appropriately, and the auto-regulatory measures that we use are through ratings of perceived exertion. Getting to that seven to eight out of ten effort to know when the patient is able to finish an exercise. And finally, uh, repetitions in reserve. And that's essentially how many repetitions do you have left in your tank. And we want them to be at a two uh, repetitions left in the tank to know that we're at sufficient uh, dosage. So those are ways that we can teach the patient how to do that on their own to safely do that, to make sure the dosage is appropriate and the soreness is in the muscle and not in the joint. Uh, I also want to really... Re- uh, emphasize the importance of both closed and open chain exercises. We can do these safely. It was often thought of that open chain exercises, uh, like the exercise, excuse me, up above, the long arc quad here was uh, detrimental to the joint. Uh, And if it's done excessively in the wrong ranges, it can be. But we can safely do open chain exercises from 90 to 45 degrees and even above that uh, without overloading the knee. And without the open chain exercise, we can't specifically target the quad as well. So those open chain exercises are an important comp- complement to the chain, closed chain exercises that are uh, effective in improving uh, stability for the knee. Well, what happens if we, we uh, can't uh, increase um the dosage and do high resistance exercises due to pain or other uh, contraindications. But We have two supplements that we use in the clinic early and often. One is neuromuscular electric stimulation, and this is not your, your stimulation for pain control. This is creating tetany in the muscle and contracting the muscle for the patient. So they are passively sitting there. We're cranking the muscle uh, load and the, and the activation to try to fire that quad early when patients have, when patients struggle to do that on their own uh, due to pain or inhibition or soft tissue healing in the acute phase. But what the literature has shown is that if we can improve strength early on by using NMES in patients with knee OA pain, we can improve strength in the long term and improve quality of, of life. So NMES is really important for helping us do that. Early uh, in the rehab process, the other modality that we have uh, that's a fairly new within the past uh, five to ten years is blood flow restriction therapy. And we, what we do in blood flow restriction therapy is we include uh, the um, the limb to 80% inclusion, which allows us to use low resistance exercises to create a high resistance environment. So. If a patient is not able to do a high resistance exercise because of pain, we can use blood flow uh, restriction therapy in a safe, uh, easy way, but still create that high resistance exercise and get the outcomes that we would see with a high resistance activity in regards to strength and stability. Uh, And so using this early in the process is also very, very helpful. I wanted to call out just some functional. We really, in physical therapy and rehab, we really focus on function. So I wanted to call this out to, to uh, show some of the functional outcome measures that we look for. And some of these measures you may have heard of, but we really focus on functional strengthening and functional balance uh, assessments to, uh, to look at fall risk with patients, older patients with knee OA, as well as some patient reported outcomes Uh, in the lower extremity functional uh, uh, test, the IKDC that Dr. Baria had mentioned. But we're looking at these to try to, to evaluate risk and ensure that we reduce that risk prior to discharging them from physical therapy. Now, the challenge to what we do in physical therapy is if patients don't Use it, they will lose it, and so gains in PT will, um, will reduce and go back to baseline uh, within four to six months months if exercise is not continued. So, really encouraging patients from a physician physician standpoint and from a rehab specialist standpoint is critically important. And so, um, even though these physical activity guidelines have been published. Uh, for a long time, only about 30% of Americans are meeting these physical activity guidelines. So talking about these guidelines uh, in a way that's important and valuable to the patient is really important. So. 150 minutes of exercise of moderate exercise activity, which is conversational intensity activity, or 75 minutes of vigorous activity, meaning you can only speak two sentences and then you have to take a breath. It's important to put, provide context to the patients about what that means. And then obviously you can't just do exercise, you have to do strength training. So we will do strength training and we will encourage activity to the day the person dies. We do that throughout our life and that has to be a part of our regular activities of daily living to make sure that we're improving quality of life uh, in, um, in our community. And uh, community programs such as yoga and tai chi are great ways to extend physical activity and balance, not only because of, of, the, uh, of the activity itself, but it also allows relationships and community building that are so important for psychological well-being for our, part, our, our patients and a way to get them out of their house and back into their community. Now I'm going to switch gears just a little bit and, and talk a bit about meniscal root uh, rehabilitation and, and these uh, tears that we're seeing. Dr. Barrio did a nice job providing some foundational information. Meniscal root tears are rare uh, in in terms of... Uh, meniscal tears that we see in the knee. In the athletic population, we typically see them with multiligaminous injuries, hyperflexion squatting injuries that really compress the root uh, of of the the meniscus. Uh, But to Dr. Barria's point, if we don't um, address these, then the hoop stresses are compromised, and that can lead to meniscal extrusion and advancement of OA. So a better recognition early on in a surgical management uh, and good rehabilitation is important for looking at better outcomes uh, than what we've done typically in the past. And so the way we treat these is a little bit different, Uh, this is an advanced uh, meniscal repair that requires a little bit uh, of narrowing of the guidelines a bit, the guardrails to to ensure that we have proper healing and, and also pro- proper progression to return them to their uh, previous uh, level of activity. So I will go through these uh, phases uh, in a little bit more detail, but I just wanted to, to, to call out what we do early on. And so we uh, look to the literature to build these clinical care guidelines. We focus really on the protection of the repair in the first couple of weeks. We put them in a mobilizer for the first two weeks, uh, non-weight-bearing for the first month. But while they're non-weight-bearing, we are using non-weight-bearing strengthening uh, modalities to really try to increase muscle strength, particularly the quad, early. Because the earlier we return that quad strength, the we, earlier we have improvement, the better the outcomes. So in rehab, we cannot wait until they're weight-bearing to start strengthening the quad. We have to do it early. And we'll show you how we do that. Uh, we want to avoid isolated hamstring strengthening for eight weeks because of the indirect connection of the hamstrings to that meniscal root to ensure that we don't compromise uh, the repair. And then finally, this is a long process. This is a six to eight month process uh, if you're going returning back to sport. So therapeutic alliance of the patient is critically important and building that trust between the, the physical therapist or the rehab specialist and the, and the patient is uh, very, very, very important. And so we talked through them about this roadmap of what to expect in the rehabilitation stages. Our first stage, phase one, which is typically from day one of post-op to up to six weeks, is really fostering healing that first four to six weeks. But because we can't do weight-bearing, the quad will really become um, uh, susceptible to disuse atrophy. So we start them on... During E-STEM early on, uh, and we also do blood flow restriction training because they can't load that, that limb. We want to make sure that we're activating and loading the quad in a safe, non-weight bearing way. We do allow them to do long, uh, our quads, 90 to 45 degrees, non-weight-bearing the first month. And then we start increasing that range of motion over the four to six uh, weeks, protecting the root uh, by avoiding uh, going beyond 90 degrees early on. And then strengthening. This is a great opportunity for our, our rehab specialists to focus on hip-strengthening in a non-weight-bearing way to make sure that we have proximal stability to improve uh, distal movement. and so. I mentioned before, these are time-based, but they're also criterion-based. So we do not move on to a next phase if we don't meet that criteria. And the criteria to move on to the next phase in phase two to start early loading is a normalization of gait pattern, uh, which is, is critical uh, that the physical therapist is evaluating that and, and ensuring that because that is thousands of repetitions of an exercise a day. So if there's any compromise uh, in gait mechanics, that is uh, an abnormal loading thousands of times a day and we have to make sure that we're on top of that early on. No extensor lag with a straight leg raise, which means the quad is contracting really well. Uh, Only a one plus effusion with a stroke test and pain free flexion up to 120 degrees of flexion, letting us know that the the root repair uh, is healing well. Moving into phase two in that early loading, we try to progress into a safe loading of the quad uh, and, and evaluating the patient to make sure there's no knee reactivity um, and the, the, the knee is telling us that it's okay to increase that load. Not only working in this sagittal plane, but we're, we're starting to work on some lateral movements as well. And that's important for the quad, but also important for our hip strength and stability. As we start to progress through the strengthening phase, and we're really thinking about the function and increasing strength and stability. So we're advancing open and closed chain uh, strength. We're really focusing on continuing our neuromuscular E-stimulation until we have 80% limb symmetry index, meaning that we want the involved quad to be at least 80% as strong as the uninvolved uh, quad on on the opposite limb. And then progressing through a lot of single leg neuromuscular stability, starting to work into some hop and holds and some uh, weight acceptance uh, as patients are starting to to work towards a return to to, to, uh, jogging phase. So at this point in the strengthening phase, before we move on to the activity phase, we really want to make sure the quad strength is is at 80% uh, limb symmetry index and they're progressing through and showing proper signs of good neuromuscular control and stability. That takes us into this return to activity phase, and we're really starting to uh, open the gates now and really pushing to make sure we have optimal dosing. So we're dosing to make sure that we have proper overload Uh, The 8 out of 10 rating of perceived exertion, a patient should be very tired by the time they get done with physical therapy in this phase, and if they're not, we're not dosing them enough. We start our walk-to-jaw progression, uh, and we have criteria that we use there to make sure that we meet those to um, uh, ensure that it's safe for them to have that load. If a patient is struggling with that, we'll put them on an anti-gravity device, this is an Ultra-G, that allows us to drop some of the uh, body weight to allow them to progress progress into more uh, uh, walk to jaw progressions without having to have that full body weight on them. Uh, And that's a safer uh, way to grade that dosage. We want to make sure that the the knee and the lower extremity is is able to tolerate that stress. So we want to make sure that they're strong, they're tolerating at least three miles of walking uh, without reactivity, uh, and they're able to negotiate uneven terrain before we really go into a lot of high advanced cutting and stability work. And this is... We're really matching strength and stability and sport-specific activities with the patient. We really focus on quick changes of direction and uh, improving uh, neurocognitive and reactivity training. And these are some devices that we use uh, called uh, Blaze Pods, and we can change on our phones the, uh, the lights on there. And a patient has to react quickly with, uh, without uh, previous um, knowledge of where the light's going to hit to make sure that we're really improving not only the stability of the lower extremity, but the neurocognitive training. We know that after an injury, uh, neurocognitive training and neural patterns change, and so we're trying to improve not only the strength and stability of the body, but also the neurocognitive efficiency of that patient to make sure they have a safe uh, opportunity to return to sport. And then when we return to sport, we're really mindful about um, giving information to our physicians to ensure that using this criteria to make the decision about uh, that return to sport. And the two I wanted to highlight uh, are really ones that we think are important. These are functional assessments. So we want to make sure that we have at least a 90% limb symmetry index. With hopping tests and with isokinetic testing, so the the picture to the top is an isokinetic test where we measure at 300 and 600 or uh, 360 degree per second uh, velocities to make sure that the quadriceps is has a good rate of dose development and strength compared to the opposite side. We're also doing hop tests single leg hop, triple hopped, a timed hop test to make sure that the single limb functional hop testing is at least 90% as strong as the opposite side before we're making those return to sport criteria. And so we may want to make sure that we provide that information to our partners uh, so that they can have good information to make sure that it's safe to return to sport. So. Our clinical care guidelines are published, uh, and we're, uh, we're happy to give these out. Uh, you can access uh, this uh, URL link that will give you access to all of our, there's about 70 uh, post-op guidelines. We review those and update them every three years. These are the two that I've mentioned before. This is a, um, a knee scope um, that would be uh, consistent with uh, a, a non-responsive, non-operative management of knee OA pain, and then also uh, more advanced uh, meniscal repairs. Thank you very much.
1: Awesome, thank you so much, John. That was wonderful overview. Um, It was really good to hear the different modalities that you use for physical therapy. I really had never heard of the blood flow restriction training, so it was interesting to see that. Now, um, you mentioned education being an important piece of the therapy of healing and all of that. Is that typically done by the physical therapist or more by the physician? Well, the,
2: it, all. We all have responsibility of education, which is really important to a critical component to the care of those patients. The benefit that PTs have, though, is that we spend hours uh, per week uh, over six to 12 weeks and longer, in some cases, up to, to six to eight months, so we spend a lot of time with the we develop a relationship with those patients, and we're able to ask questions that change throughout the time of that rehabilitative period. So the education that we do is meaningful, I think, because of the amount of time that we spend with those patients in mm-hmm. and rehab.
1: Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Now, um, you know, Michael made it sound like PRP is really Kind of a magic bullet for OA a little bit. Um, is that in addition to physical therapy, or can that sometimes replace the need for physical therapy? Yeah,
2: it certainly depends on the case. I think there's times when PRP is sufficient enough for the patient, and they and they do fine. Um, but uh, they may have impairments that are limiting their ability to return to functional activity, and that's kind of where we come in. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes PRP can help us in rehab and help us turn the corner a little bit when the patient is struggling to make uh, progress, but making sure that we're really addressing the functional strength for long-term outcomes, whether they have PRP or not, is really important for, um, for the well-being of that, of that joint.
1: Okay, perfect. Now, how long does it take... To, do, to see some improvements after a person starts physical therapy? And how long would you expect them to stay in therapy total?
2: It depends on the case, it depends on the procedure or the condition. But for someone that has knee OA pain, uh, we typically tell them to expect some improvement within two weeks. Um, wow, that's it, great! It typically that helps us understand whether or not we're uh, have the right intervention at mm-hmm. the right dosage. Mm-hmm. So, it takes typically four to six weeks, um, even up to eight weeks, to see functional improvements uh, that are important for improving um, uh, functional activities outside. So. Early as two weeks, but we typically see functional improvements at six to eight weeks uh, from a strength and stability standpoint.
1: Mm-hmm. And then for meniscal root tears, it sounds like that recovery is much, much longer. How long would you expect for a patient to get to full re- or near full function?
2: Typically, for those patients, if they're just going back to activity, four to six months. Uh, If they're going back to sport, especially a high-velocity, high-impact sports, six uh, six to eight months, uh, maybe even more depending on the
1: case. Okay. And then now sometimes I hear patients give up on physical therapy because physical therapy aggravates their pain. What would you say to that?
2: I would say it's physical therapy is critically important and there's times when we need to adjust the dial and mm-hmm. so sometimes the, uh, the dosage uh, doesn't match as well as we like and the body reacts in a different way. The most important thing is that trust between the physical therapist or the rehab specialist mm-hmm. and the patient to say, how can we modify the interventions uh, or modify the dosage of the interventions to make sure that your knee can handle it. There's a big important difference between knee, knee pain and muscle soreness. And Sometimes patients have a hard time understanding the difference. We don't want to see knee pain, uh, and so we may need to make some adjustments for that. But the the soreness is in the muscle that's an appropriate response. Not only is that um, okay, but that's what we want to see. So Mm -hmm. having some time and space to educate the patient on the difference between pain and soreness is really important for adherence with rehab.
1: Okay, perfect. Now, one last question. What if somebody's already done a course or two of physical therapy? Is there benefit from referring them again for another round?
2: Absolutely. The uh, that information is really important for us as physical therapists to say, what have, you had, what have you done in the past? If you've had physical therapy and it wasn't effective, that's important information for us to know so we can adjust. Mm-hmm. And so if it doesn't help one time, it doesn't mean it won't help again, but we do need to adjust the physical therapy or the modalities that we're using to better target uh, the real need of that patient.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, John. That was wonderful. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each of our presenters. Michael?
3: So, our final key point in platelet rich plasma and musculoskeletal medicine is that in the last 10 years, we've assimilated a lot of high quality level one data that demonstrates safety and efficacy uh, for PRP in the use of knee osteoarthritis. And it can definitely be considered a first line injectable therapy for osteoarthritis.
1: And, John? It's important
2: that uh, the physician and the rehab specialist have good communication and getting patients into physical therapy early can have significant impacts in improving their functional outcomes. So helping the patient understand the importance of physical therapy and what they can expect from that is important and that physical therapists are going to tailor their rehab to the patients and use time frames and criteria to make sure that they are progressing in the right way at the right time.
1: Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to get your CME credit and MOC point by logging on to ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Join us next week when my guests, Dr. Guibin Lee and Sumaya Buchachi are here to discuss dementia. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in, and farewell until next time.